Good morning. Today we're going to pick up on a series that Jason introduced to us last week. And I would encourage you, if, if you weren't here last week, you can uh, go into the app and there's a podcast uh, where you can go back and listen. Um, he introduced the life of Moses really from the beginning because in some ways we want to uh, spend the next month diving into a man who lived an incredible and extraordinary life. And that uh, we're going to walk through that somewhat chronologically. And Jason last week introduced you to this man who is so beautifully captured in the, the words from a passage in a book written in 1906 about him. This man whose life is a series of contrast. He's ordinary, and yet what comes out of his life and the impact of his life is extraordinary. And Jason introduced last week one of the core essential characteristics of Moses that we believe um, was kind of undergirded in his extraordinary life, and it was the, this issue of courage. That courage was essential to the life that Moses lived. And that, that courage was even um, reflected in his mother's bold action. And so I would encourage you uh, to, to jump into that and kind of catch up from last week if you have some time in the next couple of weeks. Because as we walk through, you're going to see how it builds on top of each other. Because the goal is not for us to have a really good firm understanding of Moses thousands and thousands of years ago, but to understand how a man who lived an extraordinary life thousands of years ago can help us to step into an extraordinary life today. That we really believe that there are principles in Moses' life that carries over. And one of them is the one that I'm going to unpack for us today. Um, Last year, at the end, kind of late November, the news in the midst of kind of post-election drama uh, kind of got hijacked for a few days. There was, it was technically known as the Chimney Tops 2 fire. Um, it was a, a wildfire that was raging in the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area of Tennessee. It started very small and insignificantly, and over the course of a few days and a week and into weeks, it became one of the most devastating wildfires in Tennessee history. It swept and grew from a small patch of land into 20,000 acres in just the course of a few days. What's extraordinary is that 20,000 acres may not be a number that you and I normally talk about, and so let me help you frame it this way, that 20,000 acres was roughly the equivalent of two-thirds of the city limits of Boston, or one and a half times the city limits of Providence. That 31 square miles are completely devastated in the course of just a few days of a wildfire running rampant, that we see not just trees and vegetation and animals devastated, over 2,400 homes are completely destroyed. Hundreds of businesses completely wiped off and reduced to ashes. 15,000 people are evacuated from that region. 134 people are injured in the process. And 14 people end up dying. It was one of the most significant wildfire events in eastern, um, on the eastern seacoast since the, the main fire of 1947. It's devastating fire. And what was incredibly powerful about this fire is that of all the devastation, what was truly surprising was how the fire started. You see, it started with just this. All of that devastation brought by a match. Lives lost, homes destroyed, all of it through this. And that the life of Moses kind of captures that similar ideal because 
Short into Moses' life, we see a man strike a match and almost sabotage everything that started out so significant and so incredible. A man who had been born as, as an outlaw, his very birth as a male Hebrew was illegal. He was supposed to be killed, and yet somehow in a manifestation of miracle upon miracle, this boy born as a Jew becomes Egyptian royalty. He set out on a river, and he washes up on the shore at the feet of an Egyptian princess. And a boy who should have never lived past the day he was born grows up in a palace. And yet, Amidst all of that incredible, miraculous experiences, we find a man who strikes a match and almost sabotages everything. It's not with fire. It's actually with something far more powerful. He strikes it with his desire. You see, I believe that the single most difficult person that you and I will ever lead, the greatest enemy in our life, is the one that we see every day in the mirror. The most difficult, frustrating person to lead is not a coworker, it's not an employee, it's not our children, it's not our spouse, it's not our parents. The hardest person to lead in our own life is ourselves. And Moses, in a single moment, strikes a match of desire that almost completely burns his life to the ground. And that there are examples to be learned, not just from what people do, that we should copy, but sometimes there are examples of people of what not to do. And Moses' life, because he's human, is filled with both. This hero of the faith has a colossal failure that we can all learn from. And I want to jump into his story, I want to kind of set the context a little bit, and then I want to slow it down, because I believe in slowing it down, we can start to see some things that you and I can do to prevent sabotage in our own lives. And in fact, in slowing it down, we can discover some steps and some principles to help us begin to foster self-control into our life. Uh, we pick up on the story essentially where Jason left off last week in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, one day after Moses had grown up, he's roughly about 40 at this point, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. His, his people were the Hebrews and they were enslaved to the Egyptians. So at 40, he goes out and he's watching them work and expend this slave labor. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me? As you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. I think it's an extraordinary moment. It's, it's one of those subtle hints that there's maybe more to the Bible than just a collection of literature. Because if you were going to write the story of the greatest figure in the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, would you include this moment? If you were going to write the story of a superhero, would you put this significant failure into the storyline? 
most people, most dictators throughout history, most individuals who try to portray something bigger than they actually are, tend to write these moments out of the story. And yet, the Bible captures these moments because there's something to be learned from all the steps in Moses' life. And what we see Moses do is he goes out one day to see an enslaved people, and he, co- he goes home that night enslaved. I, I'm pretty sure Moses did not walk out that day saying, hey, I really hope to go home back to the palace um, and face execution. He never set out that day to, to ruin his life and to end up being a fugitive on the run, but that's exactly what he did. He sabotaged everything that had been presented to him. And I believe if we slow this down, if we approach his story the same way, if you allow me to go old school, in high school I took photography. And there was a point in time where to, to take a picture, you didn't use a phone or a digital camera. That For us in this room who are old enough, we recognize there used to be some film, right? And you, you didn't see it instantly. You had to wait seven days to know if you even took a good picture. And that in high school, I remember taking this photography class where we would go out and our teacher would teach us all of these things that now our phones do automatically. And, and we would go back to the smelly room and we would take out the film and we would do the first significant step of developing pictures. We would develop a negative. Right? And that negative would serve as the basis for all the pictures we would produce, whether we wanted wallet or whether, whether we wanted massive, large pictures. It all came down to the negative. And that I want us to look at Moses' life the way we, we maybe perhaps looked at the negative. That in the negative, portrayed and projected in the right way, what we'll develop is not a picture of how to sabotage, but a picture of how to foster self-control in our lives. And that in his negative, we can have a negative to form a clearer picture of what it would look like for you and I to live lives with better decisions and fewer regrets, a life that is truly extraordinary. The first thing I want to call attention, because there's three different steps that I see that you and I can kind of start, that starts to develop as we dig into this picture. The first happens in verse one. We say, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were. And he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. That there's a moment in the beginning of this story where a spark happens. Something is stirred within Moses. No doubt it was a powerful, emotionally moving experience. Right? There had to be a sense of guilt because here he is, 40 years old. He's He's royalty. He doesn't look like a Hebrew. He looks like an Egyptian. He's educated in the brightest, sharpest universities of the day. He's, he's, not, he's never tasted hard labor his entire life. He's lived as close as an ancient person could have lived to the modern life of instant gratification. If he wanted something to eat, there were servants and slaves to get it for him in an instant. And one day he walks out, and as he's standing in his royal garb, he has all of this stuff stirred within him, the spark that ignites inside of him. And it's powerful, and it's emotional, and he's watching the injustice of enslaved people, and everything in him says, this is wrong. And then in the midst of watching this kind of panoramic play out, all of a sudden it sharply cuts into this tight, tight zoom of an Egyptian slave master beating 
a Hebrew slave. So violently that Moses rushes over and he, he commits the uncommittal. He takes a life. And that if we slow down just in verse 11, that we can begin to take an autopsy and realize that oftentimes that the beginning of a dangerous desire played out in our life, a, a dangerous decision played out in our life, is usually began, it usually starts with a spark, something inside, a strong emotion, a strong stirring that catches us off guard. And before we realize it, we're pulled into it. But if, if we were willing, instead of getting sucked into it to slow down, then what we would find is that we can actually begin to demonstrate and to act out self-control at the very moment it first pops its head up and within. Um, just a few weeks ago, I was reminded of this. So what, let me talk about some of my dangerous desires. Um, okay, so this will be counseling for a second. I hate traffic. There's something inside of me. I know, I, I, I'm like in my mid-30s, I should have an awareness that traffic cannot be beaten. But I still live with this burning passion that I can defeat traffic. And it's especially when I'm really tired and I just don't want to be in the car anymore. And we were coming back from um, Washington, D.C., and we leave late thinking, okay, it'll make traffic easier. We'll kind of, kind of just cut through all the cities. And it's about 10 p.m., and we've been driving for an hour. And all of a sudden, in Delaware, it's just stop. Just stop. I mean, it goes from an interstate to a parking lot in the matter of about 25 seconds. And, of course, I have a five-year-old who wants to know, when are we going to get there? I'm like, never. We're never going to get there because you have to move to go somewhere. And so at that point, I shift into my like analytical self. Um, our smart devices are all of a sudden pulling up every type of traffic and map service available, right? Waze, Google Map, Apple Maps. We're zooming in. We're like, okay, that road looks like it could be overcut to there. And so we kick it and go off the interstate because we're going to win. So we're flying through these roads, and you know we find this back road cutting through another side bridge, and we're rolling, and all of a sudden, everyone else also did the same thing I just did, and we're in traffic again. And instead of accepting it, I say, no. No, no, no. When you're down, you don't stay down. You get back up and you try harder. And so we keep zooming into maps. And Jenny's like, oh, there's a side street. Turn left. So I cut left. And as I cut left, I realized this is the way I can beat all of those other cars getting ready to merge to go into this bridge. And so I fly out. Well, the problem is the way we've come out, we have to perform a U-turn in order to go the, the direction we want to. And so as I turn and I'm going down the road, and we're looking for U-turns. There's a median in, right between the road. And and I see all of the lights turning green. It's like slow motion in my mind. And I see all these cars beginning to turn in front. I'm like, we will never get a U-turn if I do not go now. And it's like kind of this brave heart, seize the moment kind of thing. And so I take my Buick that was designed back in 2003, probably to transport like, I don't know, the president because of how heavy it is. And I cut it as hard as I can going about 20 miles per hour down the road, only to discover that there is a elevated concrete median. Not to be deterred, I hit the gas and I jump it. And all I hear is, Gah! 
And my wife is like flying back and forth. And my daughter is like, wham, wham, wham. And they're like, what are you doing? I was like, I was just doing a U-turn. They're like, you jumped a median. And my wife looks at me and says, you just wanted to beat the traffic, didn't you? I was like, babe, I didn't see the median. I was just, I was just trying to get a U-turn in. She's like, you jumped the median because you could not bear to wait on those cars coming. So the rest of the drive, I'm like so nervous that I've broken something that the Buick's going to like split in half and one part's going to go this way and the other part's going to go this way. And so a couple last weekend, in fact, I wasn't here. My brother got married and we were in Maine on a Sunday coming back. And lo and behold, 9.30 p.m., I hit traffic. And I do what I always do, pulling up maps, looking at side roads, And I go to veer off, and my wife just gently whispers, remember Delaware? (laughs) She's like, let's get home tonight in one piece. And I'm like, okay. And it was just this reminder that there is something inside of me that can be triggered by these moments. Normally, I'm a very sane individual, and yet there are certain moments, certain places where something inside of me stirs and awakens and I start to make foolish decisions. And typically, maybe it's not the same for you, but we all have this in common that I think I once heard a pastor teach on this as a backdrop, and I was like, oh, that's so brilliant, that whenever we find ourselves in a place where we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or stressed, that that's, that's the kind of dry space in our life that something can spark really easy in. That I don't know what that desire is for you. I don't know what the tendencies or, or maybe even the current places in your life where you could potentially, have, you have the potential for something to get out of control. But I imagine that all of us in this room have a space, have something inside of us that if we weren't careful, it could get out of control quick. There may be even some of us in this room or joining us online who are already starting to play with fire a little bit. Because we've gotten into some kind of situation or circumstance, and like Moses, it's starting to spiral quickly out of control, and we've already sparked something. And for us to be people who are going to practice self-control, to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets, and to begin to move towards an extraordinary life, we have to become aware of what desire inside of there can be stirred and awakened and taken us to a deeper, darker, destructive place. You need to know, what are the desires that could destroy you? We all have one, or some. And what is yours? Are you being intentional about making sure you're not sparking? Or are you starting to make choices and decisions where you're seeing sparks and maybe even the early rise of some smoke? And that's why when we're willing to slow down, what happens is that we can see that Moses was playing with fire that day when he stepped out. With all that anger burning inside, and he steps out to try to stop this Egyptian slave master from beating the Hebrew slave. And he goes beyond just being just and trying to intersect injustice. He goes and he commits a terrible act. But 
When we're willing to become aware of what's in there, then we've taken the first step. But notice it, that's not along. That's not it. Verse 12, it says that looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. There's, there is a spark that we have to become aware of if we're going to, to foster self-control and avoid sabotaging our own life. But we have to also realize that Moses demonstrates something that's really important, that there is also a space needed for that spark to begin to grow. That dangerous desires grow in dark places. Had Moses looked to the left and the right and he saw a large crowd, he would not have murdered that man. If you notice in verse 13, right, he says that in verse 12, that he looks this way and that one, and it's the fact that he sees no one that gives him the freedom to step out in this secret place and this shadow place and to kill someone. And that's a really subtle, subtle verse, but when we slow it down, we really, it starts to emerge as a step. That for many of us, it's when we create those shadow places. It's when we start to believe a lie that no one will know, no one will find out, no one will read that text message, no one will see the financials. Right? When, we, when we start to create those shadow places, those secret spaces, that's the soil that dangerous desires grow in. That, that's the place that the destructive desires start to rip apart our lives and the spark begins to grow and turn into a fire. And that it's a place that allows us to believe a lie that the only one who knows is me. And in fact... It's an absolute lie. Uh, a couple weeks ago, well, actually last week, um, it was, uh, I was doing bedtime, and I just read a story, and it was one of those days, I don't know, if for the parents in the room, if you've ever related where you're spent, and you really wish someone would put you to bed instead of you having to put someone else to bed. And it was kind of one of those days for me. I was tired. And I get in the bed, and we, we, we uh, typically have this routine where we, we read a little section from the storybook Bible we have, and then we pray, and we kind of pray specifically about gratitude and what we're thankful for. And, and then um, I kind of pray over her um, some specific things like what Jason mentioned last week for his boys. And, um, and then we read a story, and it's usually like a chapter book. And um, that was one of those days where I kind of get through and I'm reading the story and I'm like saying the wrong words and Ella's like poking me like, Daddy, you're messing up the story. And, um, and we finish and I just, instead of just like, okay, let's, we're done, I just kind of close my eyes for a second because I'm like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to move. And I close my eyes and normally Ella's this pretty like, you know, she's flopper and moving around and talking with her little stuffed animals and I don't know, a part of my brain like kind of wake it, kind of like beep, 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 like alerted me. It's like if you've ever been around kids, it's when they get quiet that you know you're like, oh, hold up, something's not right. And it was kind of one of those moments for me. I'm like, she's not making any noise. And I opened my eyes and they're like literally millimeters from my face is her mouth wide open right above my nose getting ready to chomp down. And I'm like, Ella! She's like, Daddy, I'm so, so sorry. Your nose looked like a grape. It looked so delicious. I'm like, Ella, we don't eat people. That's not right. And I'm like, I'm, why, am I having this, why am I having this conversation? 
And while it's somewhat terrifying for me, because now I go to sleep with one eye open, there's another part of me that realizes I'm the same way, right? When I think no one's looking, that's when I'm most tempted to do the things that I would never do with someone else around. That that's those places where those deep, dark, dangerous desires can take root in my life. Where the spark grabs hold of something and begins to spread. Where we have a tendency to, right, the, to linger around the coworker's desk when we should have walked away. But we have a need to feel wanted and we have a need to feel desired and we have a need to feel connected and they're feeling it. And we know it's wrong, but no one else sees the conversation or no one else sees the playful text, right? Or no one sees the Amazon purchases that we can keep hidden or the things like maybe some of you grew up in where there are certain cabinets you don't open or there are certain places in the house you don't slide out. That when we create these secret places, when we have these shadow spaces in our life, those dangerous desires can begin to grow. And what ends up happening is that we begin to make room for this very dark, dangerous thing to grow. And if we're not careful, it goes quickly out of our control. And that while we may live our life believing the lie that no one else knows, the reality is someone will eventually find out if they don't already. And I recognize my own tendencies and my own struggles, and that's why one of my commitments is I live my life like an open book. I'm not saying you should do this, but I'm just telling you quite honestly, I know where I've come from, and I know the struggles that I have. And so I don't delete text messages. Don't delete emails. I don't have a secret password. My wife has everything, and, and I celebrate it. That... Because I've realized if you live your life like an open book, you're never afraid if someone picks it up and reads it, ever. And I would encourage you, if, there, if you're in this room today and there are chapters, there are pages that you hope no one else sees, that I would encourage you to get away from those as quickly as possible. Because it never plays out the way you've convinced yourself in the head it will play out. There is not a happy, a happy ending that will be written from that chapter. And that the best thing that you can do is to move into the light. Instead of looking to the left and to the right to see if anyone else sees it, is to look up to him and say, I need strength to move away from this. And to invite people into your struggle with you to step into a place of light. To, to be in a life group here or to have a group of friends where you are willing to share your struggles because it's in the secret places that the spark begins to grow. And then we see... This last step, if we slow it down, verses 13 to 15, it says that uh, the next day he goes out and there were two men fighting, right? And he discovers that everyone knows. In verse 14, he says, who made you ruler and judge over this? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I have done must have become known. And then verse 15, he says, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. That the last step... Not just, not just becoming aware of the spark within or becoming cognizant of the spaces that we create for that spark to glow. But I think the last thing, this, this last part when we pause that's really helpful is, is to go ahead and visualize the ashes. See the ashes that will come. 
Most of the time in those moments when we're tempted or we're struggling or we're moving in, whether it's in an area of substance abuse, whether it's in this area of secret relationships, or whether it's in kind of some destructive habit, habits that we have, uh, oftentimes our focus, our cropping around the struggle is what we're going to get from it. I feel better. I feel wanted. I feel loved. It, it takes away the pain. Whatever that promise, whatever that guarantee of what I'm going to get is what we focus on. And I believe had Moses taken a moment and paused and thought about a different question, he probably wouldn't have moved forward. See, Moses, Moses didn't ask the essential question is, what will be lost if I do this? See, every choice has a cost to it. Every choice we make has a cost. And when we're pressing into these spaces and places, the, the question that needs to bubble up inside of us is, what will be lost if I move further? Because here's what we can see in Moses' story. Here's the headlines that play out in our own lives for those who maybe have walked this path. Is that these things always take you further than you wanted to go. It always costs you more than you intended to pay. And it always leaves you feeling filled with regret and disappointment at yourself. Every single time. And that had Moses sat there and paused and said, if I move forward and I kill that man, then it's not just death will come to him, but death will come to me too. You see, the reality is that for many of us, that simple pause to ask what will be lost could, could transform how we live our lives. Did you know that prison is a place filled with people who got exactly what they wanted when they wanted it? That's what unifies the prison population, is they all acted on that desire with complete disregard to how it would impact anyone and everyone. They got exactly what they wanted when they wanted it. And that's a terrifying thing. Moses acts on this desire, and he gets exactly what he wants, justice. But he never asked the question, what will I lose in the process? And what he loses is he loses his life as he's known it. He goes from being royalty to a man on the run. He goes from living in a palace to constantly being concerned about getting captured and thrown in prison. And in the end, it's not just a man who loses his life. Moses loses his too. And that for us, it's the same way. Those dangerous desires have the same impact. Death comes. When we, when we create this world of lies, what happens is that we kill trust that people have in us. That it's not one simple lie. It's not one secret conversation. What it does is it erodes trust and it kills it. Or it may destroy an entire relationship in general. Or that when we consistently act on impulse to buy things that we can't afford, what we do is we start to kill our finances and our security, that there is always death on the other side of those dangerous desires. Always. And if you're willing to pause and ask the question, what will be lost if I go with them, if I respond to that text message, if I move this, this number around in my taxes, that what we'll find is that usually the outcome is always death. And that by slowing down Moses' life, we begin to see a path forward for how you and I can begin to, instead of sabotaging, that we can experience self-control. That 
in the midst of all of this around desire, here's the thing I want to leave you with, though, because this, I think, is, is critical. For many of us, we grew up in um, religious context or maybe settings, or maybe you, you're not, and all you see is a group of people called up around do's and don'ts, and that desires are wicked and evil. But I would encourage you, when you go down to verse 16, Notice this, now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Here's the thing as I was studying this passage that stood out to me. Moses' initial action that leads to murder, the desire is to rescue. This action where he protects seven young ladies, and one, if you want to know the rest of the story, becomes his wife. It's birthed by the same desire, a desire to rescue. Here's the thing you need to realize. The reason power, the reason there is so much power in our desires is that God himself created them. He formed them. That's why they have power. We were made with desires. Those were his idea. The challenge is that when those desires go beyond the defined boundary marks for what he intended, it's in those places and spaces that the desires that were meant to bring life begin to bring death. It's when we take those desires beyond the scope of what God intended that we start to find the wildfire raging. That God gave us desires and that for many of us, the idea of rules and regulations or the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus' teachings, is we've bought into this warped way of thinking about these ideas as if God is trying to get something from us. God doesn't want me to have fun. God doesn't want me to have relationships or whatever the, the, the lie may be. But we tend to see the, what God laid out in his word as something he's trying to get from us. When instead, God gave his good design and, and definitions and boundary lines for our desires, not because he wanted something from us, but because he wanted something for us. That when we sang up earlier, where it's like love, joy, peace, righteousness, right? I mean, we're, I don't know about you, but on any given day, I'll take all four. All right, king size it, upgrade it, whatever. I'll take it all. Because those are the things I want in my life. And those are the things that God intends for our lives. And that we can have those things as we're walking out those desires within the boundary lines that he established. For me, I, I tasted this in college. Um, I got, got into college and joined a fraternity and my life was defined by desires running rampant in my life. And relationships and abuse and choices I was consistently making. And my life, at the end of the day, was like a colander. And then one of those little, little things with all the holes in them. that I would pour constantly. And I would wake up the next morning and it was empty. And I would go to bigger parties and I would do grander, greater things in my mind, and I would pour more and more and more, and I would wake up the next morning, and I was just as empty. And that through that process, God began to tap on my shoulder, and as I began to, to spend time with people, and I began to study Christianity, I realized that God had laid out some guidelines for me because he had desires for me. 
the same desires I actually wanted for myself. And I remember taking a step and crying out to God and saying, God, I can't do this. I am broken. I recognize my brokenness. And in the midst of crying out to him, he transformed me. And I want to encourage you, for some of you here today, you, I tell you my story because for some of you, you're already standing in the ashes. You look around the forest and it's already been destroyed and you just want to say, well, all hope is lost. And I want to tell you, God has brought beauty from ashes and that's not some religious notion. That's not something that we sing. It's literally me on this stage today. I have seen him do incredible things in my life. And for some of you, maybe you're not open to this idea of Christianity and you're still struggling with even how religion plays out. And I would just encourage you, I loaded something in the app for you. If you click on the Exploring Faith icon, what you'll find is a video that spends 30 minutes at your own time frame when you want to do it, diving into the role of rules. Like, why does God give commandments? Why did Jesus have teachings? And it's a space where you can dive in, no one else looking over your shoulder, and you can thoughtfully evaluate the Christian faith and the role of rules in the Christian religion. And I've created that for you. For some of you, maybe you're in a place of ashes, and I would encourage you to swing by starting point today. I'd love to tell you the rest of my story. I'd love to dive in with you. But I would say for all of us in the room, whether we're playing with fire, whether this is just a great reminder why we should avoid this, or for those who are standing in ashes, I know that all of us desire to live a life with better decisions and fewer regrets. And that what I would say over all of us is that our life does not have to be defined by our worst decision. And I would invite you back next week because what I want to do is pick up the storyline of Moses because Moses' life has another chapter. And it's a chapter that all of us desire for our own lives. It's an extraordinary chapter where Moses makes a turn and in the course of making a turn, his life turns out incredible. Doesn't mean he doesn't have hardships, but it means that his life at the end of the day was a life that made an impact that was significant and that was filled with love joy, peace, and righteousness. I want to invite you back next week to continue Moses' story. And for those who perhaps are struggling with some of the decisions in their life, um, the way I want to respond today is through a song. And for us to be able to unpack and to slow down, or maybe for some of us to either even slow down enough to say, am I playing with fire? Are there places where there's smoke already starting to rise in my life? And for us to be able to leave today, not to step into something sabotaging our life, but to, to take a step today of being people of self-control. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the storyline of Moses. Thank you that you are a God who does bring beauty from ashes. That you're a God who desires things for us that you desire us to have self-control, not sabotage. And so even as we sing, even as we reflect in this moment, I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring to mind the places and spaces in our life where, uh, where we do have some spark or, or smoke or where there are shadow places that we're allowing dangerous desires to begin to grow. And that you would give us the courage to look honestly at those things beginning to emerge in our lives and to count the cost and to evaluate what could be lost 
through those decisions and through those choices. And that we, God, would uh, be a people who live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. To be people whose lives reflect self-control in a way that inspires others to come out of the shadows and to find freedom. And thank you for the grace that you provide and the life that you bring. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand. The band's going to lead us in responding. And a song today we're going to sing is a song called Grace to Grace. And for many of us, it's probably a new song. And it's just to create a space for us to pause and to reflect. That's why in the notes, there's a series of questions for you uh, to be able to to write in, you know, what do I need to do today? What, What stood out? Because I don't doubt that there are some of us in this room who are already playing with fire. And to be able to kind of take a moment and reflect and to capture that and to maybe take a step and and getting freedom in that um, is what this this song allows us to do. Um, For some of us who call Encounter Church Home, we also have this space um, for us to be able to practice generosity. You're You're standing in a space that's been built out of the generosity of people and that we are able to do this because of people who have been generous. And for those who call Encounter Church Home, you are generous people. And this is where we practice our generosity, whether it's through giving through the app or, um, or giving through the baskets when they're passed around. And if you're a first-time guest, and if there's a way that we can pray for you, if there's a way that we can get to know you better, uh, I would just ask that instead of putting anything in the basket, uh, that you would put your connection card physically that you were handed or to use this time electronically to fill it out because we would love to step into your journey because we believe God desires good things for us, that he desires wide and open spaces in our life and that he desires us to experience better decisions and fewer regrets with every single passing day that we have. And so I want to invite you to stand, sing, respond, pause and reflect. And, uh, and then shortly after, we'll, uh, we'll dismiss and head out into our day. Thanks for being here.